Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. The Film Board Gathers. The Gang of Thugs is here to take on a movie currently in theaters in this month. Let's call it counter-programming. The crew is going to try to prove that we, too, are ken enough as we talk about Greta Gerwig's much pinker sequel to Little Women, It's Barbie. Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. You can find me under the lights, diamonds under my eyes. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. You guys ever think about dying? When my heart breaks. Some things have been happening that might be related. When my world Cold shower Ooh. falling off my roof. Ah! And my heels are on the ground. <gasps> what do I have to do? You have to go to the real world. You can go back to your regular life, or you can know the truth about the universe. The choice is now yours. The first one.
the high heel. You have to want to know. Okay? Do it again. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, but you can call me Referee Ken. And I simply couldn't be more excited to introduce our panel of the Kenniest of Kens. It's our very own pizza chef, Ken. It's Steve Sarmento. Here is your medium pizza Bianco on cauliflower crust. There's no whiter <laughs> pizza than that. <laughs> so hipster. Coming straight from rounds, it's Nurse Ken, Justin Yeager. I'm just Ken. Just Ken. <laughs> Yours is better than mine. And smelling of coffee and steamed milk, it's Barista Ken, Tommy Metz. Everybody is me, Barista Ken. I can't do voices like Steam Ken. <laughs> Uh, and, and I will say that uh, <laughs> referee Ken, pizza chef Ken, and barista Ken were released in 2019 and nurse Ken in 2021 from the <laughs> Hall of Kens. I'm trying to keep it as legit as Greta did in did. this movie. And oh my gosh, did she ever. Uh, IMDb says Barbie suffers a crisis that leads her to question her world and her existence. How did we do gents? With Barbie, I happen to actually see it with JJ, so he gets what? to go last. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yes. Sure. Steve, would you like to open the uh, arguments? Sure. When people ask me about this, I tell them this is not a Mattel movie directed by Greta Gerwig. This is a Greta Gerwig film where she was allowed to use Mattel properties within it. Those are two very different things. And I think people expecting a Mattel movie were very surprised. I was very excited by what I saw on that screen. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I know how JJ felt already, and I'm very excited <laughs> so far. I think we're three for four. Tom? I didn't What's see there? it. No, I did see it. And my thoughts were, it's so exciting to see a movie like this or any kind of movie where it seems like it's so of the moment where it wouldn't be allowed, nor would anyone have thought to have made it in this way, even like 10 years ago. There's a very clear, I can't, you know, move my arms right movie that would be right over the plate that people would have been fine with and it would have come and gone. And then there's this movie and that's thrilling. Oh, what a relief, JJ. Well, you, I mean, we saw it together in Omnimax. Amazing. And it was huge and pink and overwhelming. And <laughs> I was properly overwhelmed throughout. I loved it. Easily my favorite movie of the year. Um, hovering everywhere in that I put for greatness. Listeners may remember Tommy and I doing a podcast years ago uh, uh, talking about Mindbenders. And for the Deep Thinker, this isn't a movie only for Deep Thinkers. Right. But for the Deep Thinker that was maybe put off by the frenetic pace of everything everywhere all at once or the fighting or the nonsense that's in that. This is another way to tell the same story about exactly what you said, Pete, in terms of IMDb saying a crisis, questioning your world mm. and your existence. This was a perfect movie for me. It was the mind bender I wanted and I enjoyed it more than I even expected to. So I'm super happy to be talking about it with you today. That was that was my uh, experience with it. Just seeing it with you and your boys, like your kids, oh, are with fun. us. And what was so I I I was really curious what they were going to do walking out of this movie because they are not the target audience for Barbie. And uh, and I, I every time I looked over at them, they were laughing like out loud laughing. And you and I together, I haven't laughed. This much straight through a movie beginning to end all the way to the third act, like heartstrings uh, in a long time. Like I felt like this movie was just uh, chock-a-block with great things to, to chuckle at. And I can't wait to see it again. I walked out thinking, I cannot wait to see this movie again. Apparently, there are people who didn't like it. And we'll talk about them. <laughs> I think their nicknames all start with Save the Patriarchy. What did you guys think? <laughs> of the ideology and how uh, Gerwig and, and we'll say a co-writer uh, and uh, a partner, spouse, uh, Noah Baumbach, um, handled this whole idea of the ideology of Barbie and how it is presented in this film. Steve? I saw this on an early Saturday morning. 
So there were lots of moms with their young girls and I thought, oh, it's it's Barbie, you know, with the trailer. And then as soon as we started getting into the patriarchy, I thought, oh, there's going to be some interesting conversations on the car ride home because I was not expecting that at all. But that is one of the great things about this movie that I enjoyed so much. As you said, there are so many laughs, but there are, it's tackling these big issues in a way that's just head on. And it's bringing the ridiculous out right out front. Uh, I mean, it sets the stage so early on when we're introduced to Ken and he's introduced as he needs Barbie to see him. That's all Ken needs is he needs Barbie's attention. That's what motivates him. That's his driving force. And it's played as a joke, but then we see how much that plays into the patriarchy and his conflicts, all of that going on. Everything was so well structured and pieced together and balanced that I was just in awe of this accomplishment. And I love the fact that it tackles something big like this in a way that isn't, I, I can't see how you could be offended by this because you have to laugh at it, but it's, you laugh at it because it's true, right? The The absurdity of it all is right there on display. I think the interesting thing is that, you know, this is the anti-woke movements, you know, either greatest nightmare or greatest rallying point, really, when mm -hmm. you watch this movie. And I think that the, the people who are going to be offended are pretty much sent in that category. That being said, it's really interesting, Steve, that you bring up the concept of a mom and a daughter having interesting conversations about the patriarchy as they drive home, because I got to have that with my boys, too. You know, uh, my boys are 11 and 13. And one of the oh, things yeah. my 13 year old said was, you know, it kind of made me feel bad to be a man. Mm. And I was like, oh, right. well, I said, here's the thing. Like, that's kind of the point. It's not about you. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. like, right. like I, I get what you're saying, but we need to take the focus off of how we feel watching this and just digest the information about the way it is to be and not to be one or the other. And I think it's interesting, you know, that he felt that way. They they liked it. They liked it, but it was confusing. It was hard. It was something mm -hmm. that was, it was a challenge. And I love that it was that for them. I don't think, just like you're saying, Steve, I don't think anyone expects that from this movie. And I'm so happy that Greta and, and Noah went there because it, 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 it was, it was a landmark for me to watch that. That's really interesting. I find myself, I, for a second there, I was nearly crying because as soon as we started talking about patriarchy, I remembered Ryan Gosling saying uh, at the high school, I've got to go into the library and see if I can find some books about trucks. And I think that line is so funny, it brings me to tears. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I can't even contain it. But then the reality is, when you say it's not about you, this whole movie gives you such an opportunity as a man to say, hey, you know what makes you feel good as a man is laughing at yeah. the history and the weight of this movie. Laugh at it with the women who feel strongly about it. Be a part of that journey and not reactionary to it. And it feels better. It's just funny. I don't know. I, maybe I'm, I'm overthinking or underthinking. Uh, Tom, do you have any experience with the uh, with that piece of it? Yeah, well, I love how it really does get some... There's many levels that can meet you at any kind of level that you want. Uh, and I like that there is a lot of ideology and thoughts about ideology, and it never feels preachy, though, to mm -hmm. me. Yeah. It never feels, and it really doesn't feel angry ever. If anything, it feels frustrated. Yeah. When American yeah. Ferreira does her amazing list of oh, the gosh. impossibility of the duality of being a woman, which is such a better written version of the script, uh, speech from Gone Girl. Uh, which is about, uh, you know, all men want the cool girl that's so thin, but eats cheeseburgers or whatever. This is like an actually like really smart version of that and a much wider net for all of that stuff. But even that was done in a fun, quick, frustrated, don't you see kind of thing. I never felt yelled at. I never felt uh, that I was anything other than enjoying the moment. And I really like that. And as far as just like that, when Steve was saying, um, about one of the things about having Ken set up in the beginning, I think, uh, and really that puts us on the path. One of my favorite smart things about the script is to have all the Barbies under the assumption that they solved things. 
Mm-hmm. They're yes. not they're not glee, glo- uh, gloating about it. They're not gross. They're just like, oh, we did this. And isn't this great? And everything's solved. And then for them to sort of be their own audience surrogate as they find out that it's not that and how easily things can change. That's a really smart way to start the world and to have stakes in the world even before because it's a long time before we go to the real world. And so that's so we, the audience, know so much more about what's really going on. But it was fun to be ahead of the characters instead of behind them, which isn't always the case. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Boy, they open with the whole conceit that the Barbies have solved it very, very early. So you get to live with them right. as this, you know, a, a fish in water <laughs> right. before we get right. to what is actually ends up being a very simple architecture of the film. It is two fish out of water stories. We got fish out of water when Barbie and Ken go to um, the real world and they have their little mini uh conflict uh context awareness and then we go back to to barbie land and we have that exact same sort of awakening context and also heist kidnapping movie right Um, it becomes yeah yeah. it's sort of uh sort of a weird barbie hostel like it's it is uh, (laughs) it it ends up being uh i i think a, a lot of movie there's a lot of movie jammed into an hour and 54 minutes uh and i i didn't find myself overwhelmed by it i my only regret walking out of the movie was how much i missed because it moved so fast but it was how many jokes i'm not going to remember yeah Yeah. before it there was they clearly don't know exactly how to they've marketed this movie great but the trailers before it in my theater Mm -hmm. were so Mm -hmm. schizophrenic they -hmm. don't know what they're doing and so they're just sort of throwing everything out there and just seeing the trailer for world trolls tour whatever it is whatever the next troll movie is which even from the trailer is so filled but without purpose it just needs to keep having 19 plot points and then this which had 40 but it always felt so purposeful which is great can i make a real quick just real quick story about the opening of the movie because it starts with they did they did a lot of the sequence in an early teaser trailer where it's the little girls in the beginning of time and they're playing with the dolls and stuff halfway through especially when it's already like da 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 my mom leans i saw it with my parents in boulder my mom leans over to me and very loudly goes from planet of the apes (laughs) and i leaned back to her and said 2001 and you're whispering too loud (laughs) So that was me, me and my mom having a good bonding moment over the beginning. You're wrong and you're loud. <laughs> and then I felt the rest of the movie. I was like, got it. She can be loud. She can be loud, Barbie, if she wants to. She can be loud, Barbie. I, that was uh, that was interesting. See, so we in the Omnimag, we saw it in a museum, and the museum had no trailers, and wow. it was on the biggest of the big screens. Yeah. And so yeah. that 2001 bit played. Was- fantastically fantastically like when they finally do that tilt up shot and show giant Margot barbie Mm -hmm. uh it was it it felt like i was watching 2001 in the theater in the most beautifully tongue-in-cheek dramatic way uh i thought it was it was really special let's uh so uh, speaking of the barbies we have a lot of barbies margot Mm -hmm. robbie um you know she's she is a white producer on this uh, white savior Barbie. <laughs> yes, boy, they do not shy away from calling these things what they are. Right, um, and <laughs> and uh, uh, she is a, a producer on the film and really sounds like spearheaded all of this. She's the one mm-hmm. who brought the project to Greta Gerwig. She's the one who who sort of has been driving it for the last several years, and she ends up, um, I, I think, doing really smart justice to this character um any of the, what barbies stick out to you guys as you are as you were watching this through their all of their little see-through houses and so much waving well you know like the idea of when you are looking at the sun and the and the moon is around then you don't really notice the moon because the sun is so <laughs> bright like i did love america Ferreira, but i was focused laser focused on margot robbie for most of the film she like she nailed it and she nailed it in all different kinds of ways creatively with this. So I was I mean, literally, I'm going through the list of the cast as we're prepping for this show. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was there, too. Oh, yeah. Like I kept yeah. doing that. But she her performance was Herculean to me here. It was she carried everything that was necessary for me in this film. 
I don't think anybody will be surprised, given it was you and your lobbying efforts who got <laughs> Barbie on the calendar for us to talk about in the first place because of your love of Margot Robbie. So she, she may you know. be my favorite filmmaker. I mean, and that's I know we're going to talk about Barbenheimer uh, a little bit later, but like what she does and what she puts together to produce films right now in Hollywood is remarkable. It's I will follow her choices because they are so good. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more, especially after just watching her performance in Babylon, like coming off of talk mm, about two yeah. radically different films, <laughs> yeah. this of Margot Robbie's back to back. Sure. So I would say I early on, we get in the intro of Barbie, we get sort of like the whole all of these different Barbies, one that stuck out in my mind right away is as we're having the dance party, we've got the the Barbie in the wheelchair. So we're getting this whole like diversity, equity, inclusion, all this of Barbie is everyone. And we get that and we we get that in the casting as well, because we have uh, Hari Neff as Dr. Barbie. Uh, so it's like, OK, we've got a trans woman as Barbie. We're, we're tackling this not just as a concept, but in how we're casting this, who we're putting in this movie. And Issa Rae is President Barbie. There, <laughs> there's, you know, we've got every type of person represented in this in these barbies that we see and i love that because yeah we have margot robbie as that stereotypical barbie but we have the the spectrum of of people that are playing barbie and to me that was so important so that anybody that goes to see this can say there's someone like me in there yeah. i'm Bar barbie represents me because here's this person whether it's writer barbie or physicist we've got you know all the all the careers colors everything across the board and to me that i was so thrilled that they carried that through because that's part of the the tricky balancing act that they sort of play into with barbie of barbie represents all of these ideals but as we hear from from sasha later on like it's an unattainable ideal. You've set us up for failure because everything is so perfect. You've solved these problems. You've set us these models that we can't achieve by being all of these things. And that's a dynamic that, again, is at the heart of the story. It's part of that conflict. And to tackle that, because it's it's as soon as you say there's a movie about Barbie, it's, oh, OK, the the unreachable ideal that all women are measured against. Well, let's lean into that and in how we tackle this story. And and confronted in the face of uh, not just gender politics, but mm -hmm. corporate politics. That was yes. the piece that surprised me heartily in this film when they go, when she actually makes the journey to the real world and confronts the the leadership of Mattel, leadership in the form of, uh, you know, uh, Will Ferrell, Will Ferrell playing the CEO of Mattel and asks everybody to call him mother. Uh, on a table uh, surrounded by uh, white men, uh, really talking about how enthusiastic they are about portraying uh, or, or about uh, making toys for girls and women and how proud they are of everything they've done to bend over backwards to make toys <laughs> for girls and women and still not looking at themselves that they're right. as, uh, they are white men. I thought I think it was... of two things, sprinkles. No, yeah, sprinkles. What was it? And women. Women empowerment or something like that. <laughs> the amount that, I mean, they really, I think they had to, but still, this goes back in my opening thoughts about like yeah. 10 years ago, eight years ago, this wouldn't have happened. The amount that Mattel is making fun of themselves mm -hmm. right. is phenomenal, is really outstanding. When you hear about so many IP companies, like, what was it just that Nintendo was in a fight with, like, Mario can't be any different than... Luigi, like there were different size differences in some movie. Maybe it was Ready Player One of all of their like how precious they can be with themselves and with their own things. And Mattel clearly was just like, go for it. Someone in Mattel was like, this is going to work. And this is the only way to really do this. Otherwise, they're going to know. And so they just set themselves up to be in a boardroom. This is behind Mattel. And have Will Ferrell say, so, so we had that woman and then another one. So that's two, <laughs> two female CE. I mean, that's that's like biting. That is literally biting. And based on reality, right? Yes. I mean, they went into yeah. history to right. tell their story in a self-deprecating way that yeah. is really remarkable. Someone probably older was very nervous about this and was sending oh, yeah. notes saying, no, we can't do this. We can't do this. And the right people won out. And it's just remarkable. I really like that. 
I, I just did it to break the veil of reality. The the real CEO of Mattel is Enon Kreis, and he uh, is noted as having said, "With Toys R Us failing, uh, you know, our market has changed dramatically, and we're a big company that needs to stay afloat, and we need to pivot. And so we are now an IP company. Right. It's just who we are. Until so like they're doing the Disney thing, other right? Things? Yeah, yeah. So they are trying to re." Uh, uh, renegotiate and bring back all the IP that they had formerly licensed out because this is, and JJ, you got me thinking about this, but we walked out and you had said, you know, this is the, the uh, Barbie MCU. cinematic or the, the Mattel cinematic universe or Barbie mm-hmm. cinematic universe. Well, that is, that's where we're going with this. And I think this is a hell of a movie to start with. If I can get past my naturally sort of cynical vibe, <laughs> it, it, it's really okay. like I, I to riff on Batman, right? The, the new axiom of our age, you either die a hero or live long enough to see every company become an IP company. <laughs> um, that, that's uh, that feels like kind of where we are. Was there any drip of disingenuousness that in, in your view of this thing? No, and it reminds me of when we first saw the Lego movie, how they were very comfortable just sort of saying, yep, this is what we're doing. It's different animation that you've ever seen. And we're just we're literally going to push Legos because that's what we are. This that's the kind of company we are. And as we do some research about what's happening for Mattel, they're opening up the toy box. They're talking Mm -hmm. about the potential of a different movies with like hot wheels and rock'em sock'em robots and like those things are out there so that's mattel and now just after we talked about that i've also seen and i'm not kidding uh clues about a hasbroniverse as well (laughs) in that and i didn't see the last transformers movie but in the last transformers movie they made a crossover from what i from what i hear and again i didn't see it but introducing gi joe yeah. With this kind of thing that they are going to exist oh. in the same universe in terms of IP. So like now, I think it's a brilliant idea to think in that way of we lost our brick and mortar supply chain to reach customers. So what is the way now? And this is I, uh, this is a, the best version of it yet that I can see in terms of toy IP for sure. So Hasbro needs to come up with a better name because it cannot be the Hasbro universe because, no, no <laughs> that's. <laughs> Doom to sink. MCU already has a cra- a throne, so yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Mat- Mattel's already in good shape. With- oh yeah, Al- already planning my Hasbroniverse tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> Scratch that. <laughs> Felt like such natural uh, to me. So, okay. Lizzo, can we talk about Lizzo? Oh, uh, so did you guys yes. did you guys did you did you feel the affinity to Lizzo in the opening twenty minutes of this movie than I did? I loved yes. it. I mean, the way that they elected to integrate the music into the story was sublime. Uh, it was one of those things that I found like at once shocking and hysterical that, uh, you know, that she's, because you just don't, you don't, you don't see that kind of interaction with score, with soundtrack in, in most movies. I can't think of another movie that has done it. I'm sure you can't. Tom, you probably have one on deck. Sure. <laughs> but then you're going to put it in there. Yeah, yeah. I like right. I'll right. think of it later, and then you're just going to put it right in there. Yeah, well, well of course, you got to go with. <laughs> so, oh, coming right. right after the dog barks. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, what it reminds me of is, you know, and it's not the same, but what Edgar Wright did with Baby Driver and oh, really yeah. integrating, he did it the opposite way, right? Like, he curated the film to the music that he was choosing. And then here they just take it to another level and they introduce Lizzo as a like a narrator B and right. like doing it through music. Like it was chorus. Yeah. It was, yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that idea. Yes. I think, you know, and when she's spelling out the letters and then when they have. Mm. The, the 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 reprise of the song it comes back and now we have a more intense version i just i don't know the the creativity there is something that i so appreciate in this movie i was thinking about like you you say greek chorus we have another participant in the greek chorus and that's helen mirren right who right. Uh, right. has an incredible role in this movie right just first of all the 
the opening voiceover, the voiceover to carry us through the story. And then one of the most incisive lines in the movie right. comes to the, when, film, to the filmmakers. Yeah. A yeah. note to the filmmakers uh, casting Margot Robbie in, to deliver this message is, uh, no, I don't even remember the incomplete line to deliver this message is not the best idea or something about It's going to be hard to make this point stick because she's yes, like, like, I don't that. feel pretty. I feel I yeah. never yeah. feel pretty. And everyone's like, <laughs> she doesn't well, even right. say that. She says, I'm not pretty. And I'm that's the right. thing. Like, I laughed. It, it was uncontrollable laughter. The The scene had moved on and I couldn't stop laughing because where we hadn't seen here, we hadn't heard Helen Mirren in 45 minutes and we never hear her again. You know, it, it was totally non sequitur, totally my kind of humor. And I lost it. I haven't lost it in a film uh, laughing if, since I was in college. Like, the, it was so good and hit me so hard. Like, I loved it. And I'm so glad they did that. But the use of that voiceover is also interesting. It's something that that often we complain about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'm curious if that, if, if voiceover became tiresome at all. Steve? No, I, there's the tone of this movie is so odd and unique and it's it, it comes to the music there's there's that piece because we have that lizzo song which is yes yeah, sort of that extraneous element but then we've got singing within we've got a musical number from ken we've got all of that so yeah we have a voiceover that's explaining things to us as the audience but then commenting on it itself it just takes it to that level there's so many pieces to this the the hyper real you know design of the world all of that as I was leaving the theater, I was trying to put my finger on what does this movie make me feel like? What what can I connect this to? And the only thing I can think of is the Rocky Horror Picture Show, because I can imagine people coming back to this and interacting with this film, singing those songs, engaging in dialogue back and forth with this movie, because it asks for that. It's It's not just a show for you to watch. It's something that engages you really actively, and the narrator helps us do that. And it's the only way I could wrap my head around. There's something similar to this that has this feel. And that that's the only thing I could come up with because there's nothing else like this. And it it leans on its strengths so well. It knows exactly how to deliver all of those pieces. And I think it's also an important the traditional or first draft idea would be to have Barbie be the voiceover. Be Barbie be our entry into the world of this is me. This is my neighbors. We solved uh, feminism, like all of those things. The problem with that in this, I think the idea that we are invited in from a God's eye view for the God, someone on the God mic into the story that that helps smooth over the amount of for a film that is so dense and so fun, all the parts that are really hard to explain, they on purpose don't. And they actually have characters say like, but don't think too hard about it. Like getting from Barbie land to the real world and back because all of that is junk. You don't need it. Uh, And especially if it's sort of addressed, but the idea of like wrapping everything up of, we're going to tell you a story from top down, you're going to be involved. And then we're going to leave makes it different because then you don't have to have Barbie constantly being like, but wait, but what you can just sort of see her involved in the story. I think it's a really smart, it's a subtle distinction, but one that makes an enormous amount of difference. Yeah, for sure. And that, that God's eye view, like that coming in on Barbie as she wakes up and her eyes pop open, like effectively that's the princess bride opening the book, right? Like it's introducing us to a fable and, uh, and, and that's kind of the spirit that the movie exudes throughout. I think super smart. Yeah. Um, did you have another point? I just about wanted to talk about the humor because the humor was brought up uh, that the idea, the transition was going to be when we were talking about the songs, when she's spelling out Barbie the second time, what she's saying doesn't even match the letters. Saying, she, oh, no, yeah. It doesn't the first time either. In the, and well, she's spelling sort of, out pink because, yeah. But, yeah, but so, it like phonetically does. Or right, not right. Phonetically, so yeah. K, is, yeah. K is cool the first time. Right. Around. But then the second time. And then time, the second time, K is death. which i the thing that i feel is the most special because it is my sense of humor is the huge string of absurdism yeah and Mm -hmm. just like that kind of feeling of like dad and mom aren't watching meaning the studio meaning the thing of like it's as if they had will ferrell on set the whole time even when he wasn't acting and be like what would you do here just to make yourself laugh and he told them and they had the actors do it there's constantly this 
through line of just such weirdness and things that could have gone like, I was like, I know what joke this is going to be. And then I don't like when she takes Ken, when she's pretending to take Ken back and he goes around the corner you're ready for a woohoo, and then I come mm-hmm. back and huh. Instead, he screams sublime. Sublime. <laughs> Off camera, he screams sublime. I could not have seen that coming, and I could have written 18 of what, of course, you would have seen coming. And instead, he screams yeah. sublime. Right. This film has such a streak of absurdism, but that works. Not just absurdism for absurdism's sake, just to take you, just everyone when they're leaving, everyone just starts doing that weird slow wave <laughs> goodbye. And it's just so weird, but it's so funny. This movie is like delighting itself the entire time. And that's really, really fun. My uh, my wife, I uh, asked if she did not see it with me and she and now I'm telling her she absolutely has to. And uh, but she said, I don't have much of a memory of Barbie. I'm probably not even going to get it. Like all I remember is Barbie waving. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God, that's the iconic bit. That's like perfect. the entire <laughs> bit in the movie is waving to your point Tom, the absurdity of her in the car needing to use both hands to wave and not drive like it was so funny um you you brought up ken though which or or, uh, ken we should say ryan gosling um who uh legendarily did not want to do this movie did not understand why they wanted him for this movie it took a lot of of uh of convincing to get ryan gosling to to do this film um as our principal (laughs) beach ken What's your job? Beach. Beach. It's great. <laughs> oh, I don't run there, pointing to waves. <laughs> I stand here. And even if I, I did, I am not qualified to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is going to be rough. There's so much, Ken, that I thought was funny. Just in hindsight, yeah. it's hard to to talk through it without, uh, without breaking for me. Um, where do we stand on Ryan Gosling? His both, I'll say, dramatic performance, comedic performance, and, oh, my God, physical performance uh, as Ken. (laughs) Thoughts? Tom, you go first. Outstanding. He is always, I've never been a huge Gosling fan. I remember going on record on this podcast being like his perfect role was Blade Runner 2049 because I actually Mm -hmm. believe he is a robot. Like There's been a lot of times when I've been like, so... Everyone loves him because he's not acting. Like, I feel like he's, <laughs> he strips everything down so much. I'm like, he's just talking. Um, but then in like this and the nice guys, he knows yeah. the timing of a joke. Unless yeah. someone is like, he's a marionette. He knows the physical and emotional and verbal timing of a joke incredibly well. And he doesn't have that kind of blank, like, I don't really get why this is funny. So I'm just going to play it straight and then it'll be funny. I would like to put like maybe with all due respect, like Mark Wahlberg a little bit more in that, like he's really funny in the good guys, but it's because he's playing it straight with just a little bit more energy. And then the film around it makes it funny. This is, he's really putting a lot of, uh, English on a lot of these lines and Mm -hmm. a lot of these jokes. And he's he makes himself very, um, vulnerable at times. His, uh, overly uh aggressive masculine thing is amazing uh it's so and then his uh complete love of horses like that's part writing but he really <laughs> oversells it in a way that is so gratifying he didn't need to even do as much as he did but it's so i'm so grateful he did he's a perfect for it yeah yeah steve uh do you did you did you count the pack of his abs, I think is it eight? Is it twelve? I, I think of I think of Ryan Gosling as a as kind of a, I a softer actor. I don't I don't think of him as as this uh, as the physical specimen. And I couldn't tell is he is did what did he do something like or is this a suit? Clearly, you that from crazy, crazy sexy love, crazy, crazy stupid love. love. I just watched oh, that. Right. Emma Stone yeah. says, "Oh my God, are you Photoshop? You Photoshop? Yeah. This is yeah. what he looked like. Yeah, yeah. This is what he exactly. Looks like. He's extraordinary. He's a, yeah. he's a specimen. He is, and uh, it's his the role of of Beach Ken is a an interesting one because as we were getting along the story, I thought, okay, who's the villain? Right? Is is Ken really the villain, or is it just that he's the opposite of Barbie? What? What is his function and role? Because are they at odds with each other, but he really wants her to, there's a lot of complexity going on and what, what's motivating Ken to do the things that he wants. And then he, he discovers patriarchy, right? And it's a yeah. it, very interesting journey that 
he goes on and yeah, just the whole uh, Mojo Dojo Casa House, all of that hyper masculine oh. stuff, the, the Sylvester Stallone, all of that is is just yes. I know that's where some of the critics are going to come in on this movie of like that commentary on that. But if we look at what Barbie is, and you've got this like celebration of what it means to be feminine and the success of that. So for Ken, it's that's his aspiration of like what is the ultimate masculinity taken to success and that's what we see at odds with each other in this film and to me that was the the smartest way to tackle that of how do you have a villain it's not that he's out to undermine barbie it's he's got to figure out who he is himself and that's where he goes astray with that and so that's how we get this conflict not of oh he's actively opposing barbie it's i've got to do my thing because you've always had your thing but i'm just ken right as he says i'm and ken Right. right. He's got to yeah. be himself. And that to me is a very smart way to structure the, the conflict between the two. It's almost I, like he grows up like a teenager. Mm-hmm. Once they try to find themselves, yeah, they lean right. in traditionally way too hard. Oh, and yes. then they're like, oh, I get it. This is the good part. I don't have to be the blank guy. Yeah. Right. And that's sort of what it's he learned. It's an interesting perspective, too. And, and I think I can see, you know, there there is this this sort of template for Ken, which is it, so much of the heart of the of the movie is on the void that exists when Barbie is not looking at him. Mm-hmm. And the film makes the, the point, perhaps indelicately, that when that void exists, the natural norm of man is to find and adapt to patriarchy, hmm. right? Like that there's no other. And... And and that I, I think is missing the point of the punchline of the film, which is it doesn't have to be binary. It doesn't have to be hyper masculine or as a partner. It can be a middle space of they don't some all have to be girls' nights. Yes. Right. Exactly. And they don't all have to everyone have to has to have a horse. Mojo Dojo Casa yeah. House with the fifty inch TV with the horses always running on a loop on it, which I thought was <laughs> outstanding production design choices. Um, so I, I think that was a, a really interesting uh, sort of take on it and also controversy bait, right? Because if you don't watch closely, once you get mad, you miss the end, right? Which mm. the end absolves the movie of earlier criticism, right? A challenge. So uh, I I went in not knowing that Simu Lu was in this. JJ told me, <laughs> and it was the thing I got most excited about as we took our seats. JJ, how'd you feel about our uh, uh, other uh, tourist Ken? Well, what a great balance. Um, I think that tourist Ken has a lot more attitude than beach Ken, which I think is interesting because I was thinking of Ken's as going to be uniform, but they weren't. And he was very comfortable with his ego in a way that maybe the other Ken's were not early on. Um, But I, I love watching him on screen and both he and Ryan Gosling and their physical background being, you know, martial arts, dance, all these kinds of things. Like it made for the perfect interpretation of what was happening in the film. And then uh, we talked actually, as we were leaving too, about Kingsley Benadir, like he's having mm. a moment right now. Yes. He's yeah. the big bad in secret invasion. Like he's, there is a lot going on in his life right now. And he is very fun to watch on screen too. Absolutely agree. And pleasantly surprised to see uh, Dua Lipa and John Cena as the mermaid. <laughs> and mermaid and, uh, I thought that was was very, very funny. Uh, the, the other piece that I, I thought was so subversive is going back into the annals of Mattel uh, history and bringing us thing, characters like Sugar Daddy. Ken. Oh, <laughs> no, not Sugar yeah. Daddy, but Sugar's Sugar Daddy. Daddy. And, yeah. 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 So, so an earring magic. Ken. Yes, hearing magic. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then, of course, Michael Sarah as Alan. Uh, and sometimes Michael Sarah can be really, really Michael Sarah in mm-hmm. movies. And I did not find him overly Michael Sarah. I really enjoyed Alan and what Alan represented in the movie. Yeah, I agree. He was my boy's favorite character. They loved Alan and they wanted more Alan throughout the movie, <laughs> yeah. which I think is really interesting when you think about the way that they all work together. And, you know, we are on to the Kens, but we did not talk about Kate McKinnon. And I, you know, oh, weird I just want to yeah. kind of throw in a Kate McKinnon as Weird Barbie. She can do no wrong in my eyes. I want to watch her in everything she does. And part of that absurdism and the idea of that every time we're in Barbie land, 
there is a corresponding person in the real world that is playing with this toy that is making this happen happens through the weird Barbie concept. And I think what that means for the rest of the movie, you forget because you're taking part in the story. But what an interesting idea to the way that's all thrown together. For sure. For sure. And that that we get the reveal that, you know, there is the twist that we don't know who stereotypical Barbie is being played with. But right. right? It's, it turns out it's mom. Oh, my goodness. Shock and awe. I mean, of, of course, it was going to be mom. But I still didn't feel like that was like I was baited toward that direction. I still felt honest. Yep. Yes. And going back to Alan for a second, because he was one of my favorites, too. It is interesting. There is a way to look. One of the complaints um, that the Barbies have, or I guess American Ferreira has, is there isn't an ordinary Barbie. Mm-hmm. That they're all so extraordinary, the daughter and yeah. like this, and there should right. be an ordinary Barbie. Again, Mattel kicking itself in its own ass when he's like, that's a terrible <laughs> idea. Oh, we can make money on that. What a great idea. Yes. Again, being right. like, this is all capitalism, everybody. Like, we're, we're all yeah. kind of learning. The problem is when you pat yourself on the back so hard, we're all making money. So I like that they're not <laughs> shying away from that. But then, Alan, it's almost like they gave themselves an, an ordinary Ken. Mm-hmm. Alan doesn't right, yeah. do anything. Right. And that's right. what we don't give Barbie. Barbie and his best seem friends have... are Barbies. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so but... that's interesting that there is just sort of this other person. And he's a very, very strong, very sad. He has the most interesting arcs of some of the, well, not arcs, just existences, I guess, because he doesn't really change because he can't. He's Alan. <laughs> yes. yeah. He's right. Alan. He's Alan. He's... Yeah. Well, now, I don't know if you want to transition into talking about making money, but holy cow. Wow. This oh, weekend. Yeah. We, yeah. you know, we, we, we previewed it a little bit talking about Barbenheimer. Um, Which we need I to think, talk about and explain right. as if we need to explain it, I guess. Right. But for, well, for I, history. I brought it up in concept of talking about Margot Robbie as one of my favorite filmmakers because who I've always talked about before when we've had this survey was Christopher Nolan. And the only reason, well, I shouldn't say the only reason, but one of the main reasons why I saw Barbie this weekend is because I had my boys with me. But next weekend, I'm going to turn around and go see Oppenheimer right away. What I heard in terms of the money was $155 million for Barbie on week one, $80.9, $81 million for Oppenheimer, which... Again, I don't, this is a little bit of hyperbole, but what I've heard is potentially the third biggest opening weekend for uh, the third biggest Hollywood weekend in history, having both those movies do so well, which is fantastic. I am so excited for both of these movies. And it's hopefully for once sending the right uh, knowledge or the right note to Hollywood. Yes. Unfortunately, they may take it as C. IP is the most important. The Mm. real note, the real important takeaway is original storytelling. Original storytelling. It's not just superhero fatigue. It is original storytelling. Because Barbie is not at all like you began this entire thing, Pete. It is not a Mattel movie. It is not a Barbie movie. It is something completely of its own that involves, that sort of tackles and realigns a very well-known property. And so that's, I'm hoping they take that away from it and and you could say the same thing about oppenheimer right i mean right. well-known property we we certainly right. well i guess that's I, which true, which oppenheimer know, did you guys have that, growing up the thing that, yeah. <laughs> i had am become death oppenheimer right yes <laughs> i had eater somebody of worlds, destroyer of worlds that, yes. somebody must put that on a shirt in the barbie typeface yeah. um the uh, the thing that I think is interesting for him, too, is that this is his third, I think his third biggest opening, that it, non-Batman opening, non-Batman, right? right? This is right. his biggest film, right? So that is that is not a superhero property. So, you know, and it's an R-rated film, and it's done an incredible, like, it's incredible to say, let's, let's throw... Like in terms of of supporting movies that we want to see made, uh, this is this is a pretty good way to do it. Greta Gerwig's uh, uh, crew. I mean, in terms of bringing this thing together visually, I I see this list. I'll say uh, Water for Elephants, Argo, Wolf of Wall Street, um, The Homesman, Passengers, The Irishman, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, and Barbie. And I think those things shouldn't go together, but they yeah. do in Rodrigo Prieto's uh, oh. catalog of mm. movies as cinematographer. Oh, and wow. I am so curious your thoughts on the visuals of this thing, because my goodness, what an interesting contrast to Killers of the Flower Moon. 
Rodrigo. <laughs> and, and in an interview with, with Gerwig, she said, I kept having to pinch myself. Like, I'm so full of anxiety going into production with this because I'm sitting here with Rodrigo, who said yes. And I had to keep looking at him and say, are you sure you want to be here? Because <laughs> Scorsese, right? And he said, yes, I want to be here. <laughs> yeah. Well, he probably read the script. I yeah. mean, to be honest, there's so much to visually tell with this story that's here. And he does a fantastic job. The colors the guy can light. My the God, reason why I wanted to watch it in Omnimax is because I wanted to be blown away by the by the pictures, by the colors, by all that. And it delivers. It delivers all over the place. And it's framed extremely well. At no point do you feel lost in the story. You are with it. Uh, the, the the transitions, everything is is powerful and powerfully shot. And I I loved it. I'm so glad that someone with that sort of that idea, that sort of creativity was uh, assigned on to do this movie. It's very interesting because when we talk about Barbenheimer, about the marketing of these, it's they seem like such opposites. But as, as you point out, Pete, it's it's the look of the film because that's really how these movies got out there because Oppenheimer was all marketed of, you've got to see it on this specific screen in this format. This is the way it's designed to really under, appreciate the visual intent of the artist behind this. This is the, you've got to see it in IMAX with 70 millimeter, this and that. It was very specific of this is how to experience this film. And with Barbie, it was all the trailers were about, this is big, it's gorgeous, it's pink. What did we hear? That there was the shortage of pink paint because it, the production design on this was to create this hyper real world of that everybody could look at and go, oh my gosh, that is Barbie. It was so much hinged on what you see on the screen that it pulled audiences in because they were going to go experience something they could not anywhere else. You could not, you don't want to see Oppenheimer on your phone or on your small TV at home. Barbie, you want to be immersed in that Barbie dreamland world. And that's really what both these films leveraged to their, their they leaned on their strengths of this. If they knew that's what was going to draw people in, because this was a unique experience that you had to go see when it comes to the numbers, I knew Oppenheimer was going to be disadvantaged because it wasn't going to play on as many screens because of its format and its runtime was going to limit it. I I go to look to see, I can see Oppenheimer. There's like three showings per day and it's on like two screens. Barbie's playing in like four theaters, including these super tiny ones. And every single show is like sold out, sold out, sold out. So I, it, it was one of these things where normally I can wait till a day before to get a ticket. It was like, no, you can't wait. You're going to be stuck in the front row or on the outer fringe. People showed up in droves to see these movies because they loved the experience that they knew they were going to get from both of these filmmakers. Did you guys have people dressed up? Oh, yeah. For Barbie? I did, too. Adults and kids alike were yep, dressed up yep. in costume. I thought that was fun. Boys and oh, girls. And they, they had a whole th display of pink cupcakes. And I mean, it was an event. Like it was. A, oh, really? I didn't, get a, wow. I didn't get a cupcake. I don't know. Did you get a no. cupcake, JJ? I got no, no, cake. no. But we uh, saw a kid in a box walking no. in, which yeah. is very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, you know, uh, in terms of just sort of thinking about how we approach uh, our, our ranking of this thing, I, I this is a fantastic uh, film and. I have to go back to what is it the the Ebert model, right? Does how well does it succeed at doing what it intends to succeed, uh, what it intends to do, right? And so, uh, I'm really curious how you guys uh, land in our in our when we when we rate and review for Letterboxd. Uh, before we do that, however, <laughs> just some housekeeping. Uh, uh, <laughs> You can join our online community with fellow movie lovers of the True Story FM Discord server. You can join for free at thenextreel.com slash Discord. And if you like what we're doing here, why not become a supporting member? Just head over to thenextreel.com slash membership. You can learn more about benefits, members-only Discord channels, show live streams. You could be watching this live right now if you really, really wanted to, uh, and so much more. Okay, Letterboxd. We are on Letterboxd, True Story FM's family of film podcasts, all part of the Next Reel's HQ page. Letterboxd is a great way to track movies you see, write your own reviews, and be a part of the larger community of film lovers just like yourself. Yeah. Sign up. They all look like you. Go look in a mirror. They all look just like you. <laughs> you can sign up for your own account today. And if you upgrade to a pro or patron account, use the discount code NEXTREAL at checkout and save 20%. This works for renewals as well. Out of five stars, gents. Uh, how, where do you, if uh, 0.5s count, although you know me, no half stars, Pete Wright. Uh, where do you stand on this movie, Steve? This is tricky because I'm I'm 
going to play the long game here. And I'm going to say this is going to end up at a 4.5. My theatrical experience was five stars because the woman sitting next to me. So as opposed to Magic Mike's Last Dance, where I went in and was surrounded by women, this was a different experience because they really were empowered in a different way. The woman next to me is America Ferraro delivers her her speech. And the woman next to me is just like, whoo, yeah, go. And I was waiting for the crowd to erupt, but it was early morning and lots of like seven and eight year old girls. So I think some of the moms were like, not ready to bust loose with that, but there was definitely a palpable (laughs) energy in the room as this movie played out. And to me, that made it a five-star experience. And I think that watching this, Again, at home later on, it'll probably be a 4.5 because there is something about the community experience of engaging with this, which is, again, why I compare it to Rocky Horror Picture Show. This is an event experience. So that's that's where I'm going to end up 4.5 in a, in a heart. All right. JJ? Well, I started out as a 4.5 as well, Steve. And as we've been talking, I moved up to a 5. Because really, <laughs> for me, I had to think about the legs with mm-hmm. this movie. And this movie <laughs> right. is going to have, <laughs> well, uh, you know, yeah, no, but it's going to last for me. This yeah. is going to be a movie that I'm going to remember. I compared it early on to, for me, in the realm of a mind bender and the considerations about life, very similar to my experience to everything, everywhere, all at mm-hmm. once. And I think... And I think more about like last summer and how everyone talked about Top Gun Maverick and all these things. What that was last summer, or was that the summer before? No, I'm, you're right. I'm like getting a little tripped up in the pandemic time time uh, t- tunnel. But yeah, how that how Tom Cruise came and saved film, and mm-hmm. I feel like this yeah. weekend is going to have that effect as well. And mm-hmm. I really attribute it to this movie and to Oppenheimer. I think both of them are going to do it, and 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 this delivered everything that I expected and more. So it's a five star for me and heart. Okay. Five star JJ, Tom. Hi, it's me, uh, Tom. I've been here the whole time. Um, I am going to give it. I loved this movie. I loved the experience. I loved being in a, a room filled with people. I loved seeing it with my folks, even though my mom doesn't know what Planet of the Apes is. It was all <laughs> wonderful. Uh, there's one reason why I'm giving it 4.5 instead of five. And it's because... I saw Oppenheimer also, and I think Oppenheimer is a, I think this is an extremely good film. I think Oppenheimer might be a masterpiece. Wow. And so I can't, oh, excited. I can't give it mm-hmm. in the face of Oppenheimer. I can't give this as equal because it's just not, it has some minor, very quibbly issues, but for what it came out to do and what it could have been, this is a triumph. And I'm so happy that it's here. I love Oppenarby as a <laughs> as a weekend. This is really a celebration of film and smart film, not just film screaming in your face, mm-hmm. but smart. What film can be? And yeah. so, yeah, four point five and a huge heart. And I really this is yeah. This is my challenge, though, with that thinking, right? And this is why I sort of said the way I did opening up this whole conversation because how could Barbie have become five stars for you. Is there a mm. universe when that's even possible for what the movie is? There's one big thing for me. What? But it's very quibbling. Quibbling, and it's just something that I... I want to hear the half-star quibble that would make Barbie five stars for you. For a movie that is so strong and it seems like no one is watching... There's too many times in the first half of the movie where the movie is nervous, where there's way too much ADR. The only reason Mm. you put ADR when people are walking, when they turn their backs or are walking off screen and they have to jam in one little less, one little more joke. I call that an example of a nervous film. You're Mm. worried about losing your audience's attention. And there's a lot of it in the first half of this. And it's clear that there's so much strength that this film has that just didn't need that you didn't need a writer's room to start tossing in jokes because it was as strong as could be and so that's just that kind of nervousness is so is is always just sort of a bullhorn in my head that's the difference for me but again that's maybe more of a, a comment on myself than the movie that's just something that i can't ever not hear and see of like i was like that decision was made so much later and it's not needed over and over. No, and I I totally get it. And I'm glad you said it because I think that's the, 
but that's I didn't notice it at all. Like I was so lost in the movie, and that's why I am absolutely giving it five stars. Nay, hooray! I'm on Team JJ. This movie succeeds in every way toward what it wants to be, and it Love gives it. me all of it. I'm also not uh, like I'm. I feel like I'm trying to change the way I think about my ratings. Like uh, this is how I feel right now. Mm-hmm. Next time I watch it, could it change? Sure. It, sure. it could change. And that's what I love about Letterboxd because you can log films with different ratings over time and see how your, how your reviews change in your diary. That's a really great thing. Oh, did I mention next reel at checkout saves you 20%. What? You really <laughs> but, yeah, I but, know it's really amazing, but that's amazing. not for renewals as well. Correct. It is for renewals. Tom. What? It is for renewals. I'm consistently surprised. Um, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> uh we have a banger next month i can't i if we we really wrestled with this one we want uh, you to watch our show <laughs> that's right we're taking the last boat out of carpathia with andre overdahl's the last voyage of the demeter I don't even know what we're going to get out of this. I haven't seen the trailer. I'm relying on you guys. I'm very excited about the filmmaker and definitely the screenwriter. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. So you guys, you're amazing. Don't forget, everybody, check out the uh, nextreel.com slash Discord. Join that community. Nextreel.com slash membership. You're the best. And on behalf of... Steve Sarmento, Ken. Goodbye, Ken. Uh, actually, I was thinking about Ken Club because I could say I am Ken's inflamed sense of rejection. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's a good lead, JJ. Thank you. Cheerio. Look, I'm just waving. Tom. <laughs> Bye, friends. Bye, everybody. Thank you, everybody. I'm Pete Wright. And we'll check you uh, next month right here on the billboard. Meeting. Adjourn. <laughs> Here on the film board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denny Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. Thenextreel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and the Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 